Hi, this is Sarah McCaslin with the Forgotten Sheep Podcast. And the topic of this podcast isn't so much a particular missionary, but a particular missionary action. And I've entitled it, The Salvation Army Invades Devil's Island. And what we're going to do is look back at some of the early history of the Salvation Army. And we're going to see how they made a difference in the lives of prisoners on the French penal colony called Devil's Island. So in 1928, the Salvation Army sent one of its officers to Devil's Island. And as I mentioned, this was a notorious French penal colony. Uh, It was on an island called Cayenne, and it was located in South America, uh, slightly north uh, north of Brazil. And it was a place of true hopelessness, desolation, wickedness, and violence. It was a place that was infested with evil and darkness. And it was a place where humanity was stripped away from people. And this is where the Salvation Army had been seeking to start an outreach for many years. And finally, the Lord opened the door for this to, for this to happen. So, we have a French Salvation Army officer by the name of Charles Payon. And he was informed by his superior officer one day, kind of out of the blue, that he was being sent to Devil's Island. Now, being a French citizen, he knew what Devil's Island was. He was very much aware. He was very much aware of the situation there, of the hopelessness there, of everything that entailed. And his first words were, when do I leave? And his officer, his commanding officer, waved that question off. And I love this. Right after he tells Charles, you're going to go to Devil's Island, he gets out of his chair and he kneels down on the floor and motions for Charles to join him. And he said, the first thing we need to do is pray. So let's talk for a minute about the Salvation Army. One of their major slogans uh, in their early days was, a man may be down but he's never out. And that was very important to the Salvation Army ministries. Uh, And it was more than just a slogan. It was something they lived. It was something they believed so firmly. And so it had a lot of different meanings. I, uh, from my, from my understanding, for example, um, it meant that it, meant, it might mean that a man that had been struggling with alcoholism had fallen back into drink. But it didn't mean he was a lost cause. He may be down, but he's not out. The Lord can still set him back on his feet and deliver him. It means that nobody can go so far and so deep into sin that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse that sin and set them free from that. It means that nobody can be so in bondage to wickedness or addictions or things like that, so entrapped in it that Jesus cannot break those bonds. It means so somebody can't be so full of the devil and so full of evil that Jesus can't deliver them and save them. It means that they believe there was hope 
for every single individual on this earth. They refused to make judgment calls on who was worthy or who was unworthy to be saved. They refused to make judgment calls on who was worthy of effort and who was unworthy of effort. They refused to say this particular group of the population is... uh, against God, so we're not going to bother with them. They didn't try to use um, some type of prophetic prophecy to eliminate an entire cultural group from missionary outreaches. They believed there was hope for everybody. And if you stumbled and fell, there was still hope for you. If you stumbled and fell a thousand times, there was still hope for you. That's what they believed the Bible taught. And you know what? I believe the Bible teaches that too. It's not that you stumble and fall that can mess you up. It's if you just lay there and wallow in it. As uh, one pastor that my mother used to hear used to say, if you fall, you don't just lay there and wallow, but through the grace of God, you get up and you try again. And you may have to get up and try again a hundred times, but one day, one day you will not fall over that same thing again. And so that's kind of what the Salvation Army believed. They believed there was hope for everybody. So, what about Devil's Island? Well, that was going to be a very difficult case. Many of the people that were incarcerated there, mainly men that were incarcerated there, were considered hopeless degenerates. They were just to give you an idea of how uh, many in the French government and the French population viewed them, when prisoners would die, they were buried in a cemetery, but the statue of Jesus faced away from them because they believed God had turned his back on these men. And so, here comes the Salvation Army with their belief that there's hope for everybody. And so they're about to make their invasion, so to speak, of Devil's Island. So, Cayenne, Devil's Island, was meant to be a home for the very worst of French criminals. And this included military and political criminals also. And it also included murderers and rapists. The problem is you take political prisoners and petty criminals that are relatively harmless and you put them in a population filled with murderers and rapists, you're going to have very serious problems. Now, it was the prisoners who changed the name of the island from Cayenne to Devil's Island. Now, Devil's Island was founded in 1852, but it was not emptied of prisoners until the 1950s, until 1953. And I believe it was in the 19, uh, 1928 when the Salvation Army was first able to gain access uh, to the island. So, Devil's Island, Cayenne, consisted of three small islands and a small prison that was on the mainland. Now, there was a fourfold purpose to Devil's Island. Okay, um, The first was prevention of crime. The second purpose was rehabilitation. The third purpose was segregation. And the fourth purpose was colonization. So, prevention of crime. They hoped, the French government, the French officials hoped that just the thought of this prison colony would be enough to deter crime. Now, as far as rehabilitation goes, 
The convicts were supposed to learn a trade and be given a piece of land when their original sentence was complete. Things did not work out that way. Um, there, before the Salvation Army arrived on the island, there was no rehabilitation that could successfully take place there. Another goal was to make sure that the worst criminals were never returned to France. That's what they meant by segregation. They wanted to keep the very worst criminals on that island and never let them set foot on the French mainland again. And it was through what they called a system of doublage, where they're, uh, as I'm, if I'm recalling this correctly, and I do discuss it in more detail later, but their sentence, uh, when they were sent to the island, their sentence was automatically doubled. Finally, they had hoped that um, the Cayenne penal colony would serve as a way to colonize uh, this area in South America. They had hoped that the men who had served their sentences would stay in that area and colonize it. After all, they were supposed to be given a piece of land when their sentence was completed. These things did not work as far as those goals it was, uh, except for the part of segregation of trying to keep the very dangerous criminals off the French mainland, it was an utter and absolute failure. And it seemed as if nobody knew how to fix it. Nobody knew how to put a stop to it. Now, its remote location was meant to discourage escapees. Um, there, this place was pretty bad. There were shark-infested waters, and the jungle was full of booby traps, it was almost impossible to escape. There were only a handful of successful attempts. Now, prisoners were required to labor in order to minimize their financial impact on the French colony. And on the surface, that sounds reasonable. Um, they'll do work so that they can contribute to society. Well, the problem was the prisoners who would not or could not work were beaten and the other prisoners were pretty much worked to death. And prisoners could be executed for simply raising a hand to one of the guards. Um, and there were many executions on that island. One of the prisoners was responsible for running the guillotine until he himself was executed by the very guillotine that he had run for so many years. So we t I talked about this being such a place of hopelessness. Once on the island, a prisoner's sentence would automatically be doubled. And an eight-year sentence, now I want you guys to listen to this, an eight-year sentence was legally changed to a life sentence. That is just unimaginable. We, we can't imagine what these men must have felt and remember, not all of them were murderers and rapists. Many were political prisoners or, or petty criminals, um, habitual thieves, habitual pickpockets. And they were in there with all the others. They would have to survive the other criminals on the island, as well as surviving hard labor in tropical heat they were not used to being in, malaria, all kinds of other contagious diseases, including sexually transmitted diseases, as well as abusive guards. If they survived their sentence, 
Okay, if it was less than an eight-year sentence, so it didn't turn into a life sentence, if they survived that sentence, they had no way of getting money to go home. So they had no choice but to stay in that area on that island. So in short, a sentence to Devil's Island, no matter how short, quickly turned in to a hopeless life sentence. Now, conditions were terrible. Um, the prisoners, uh, like I said, they were put to work in the heat uh, with all types of insect-borne diseases, mosquitoes, dangerous uh, dangerous animals, snakes, etc. Um, they did dig a reservoir that worked very well for the island. And so you said, well, that's good. They, they had them doing labor that was beneficial for the whole island. They had to dig it with teaspoons, guys. They had to dig it a teaspoonful at a time. Imagine the slow progress, the humidity, the ever-present heat. And in the prison camps, a lot of times prisoners had to work in water up to their waist. If they were caught trying to escape, they were labeled incorrigible and forced to work extra hours and then were placed in irons at night. It's estimated that 80,000 prisoners died on Devil's Island. And in the overflow timber camp of Caro, 4,000 prisoners died in just three years. 40% of new arrivals to the island died within their first year on the island. And that, that is where the Salvation Army had felt led of God to go and to reach out to people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was not an immediate thing. There were many years that they had to wait for the Lord to open that door. Many prayers, but the Lord did open that door. And the French government agreed to allow a Salvation Army officer on the island to scope it out and to get an idea of what type of work could be done. So Charles Payon arrives in 1928 on Devil's Island at the same harbor where the prisoners would arrive. Um, three types of prisoners, again, on the island. You had the felons. They were murderers. Uh, rapists, uh, robbery with violence, what we would call, quote, unquote, the scary guys, okay? Then you have what they call the recidivists, and these were people that had been convicted of the same type of crime 10 times or more. Repeat offenders, but not for serious felony-level crimes. Things like um, pickpockets, thieves, forgers, and they were placed on the island like the murderers and the rapists were. Then you had the political prisoners. And probably political prisoners are what Devil's Island is most famous for because there were some books and a, a movie written about Devil's Island that involved a political prisoner. And so you've got these three types of prisoners all caught in equally hopeless situations. So the Salvation Army had a plan, okay? Four points to their plan, four objectives. Objective number one, 
salvation of the convicts. And that is always the Salvation Army's overarching goal is salvation from its earliest days until now. So that was their first objective. Second objective, set up a functional colony for the liberated men. You know, I talked about the uh, the prisoners that would be freed and they would be able to get a small farm going and they would have their little garden and they would have the home they built and it would be destroyed out of spite and hatred and just plain old wickedness. And if it wasn't destroyed, they'd probably end up being murdered. So the Salvation Army wanted to set up a better solution for that to separate the liberated men from the prisoners and give them a shot at uh, living a normal life there in South America. Number three, reunite the prisoners with their family when wise and practical. Okay? They, the Salvation Army did not view the world through rose-colored glasses. They were very familiar with all the horrors that one human being could subject another human being to. And they realized that it was not always the best thing for prisoners to return to their families. And so that's why they added the catch here, whenever wise and practical. Fourth objective was organize the repatriation of those who had completed their term. They wanted to help them get back to France if they had, you know, completed their term, help them get the money to get back to France and then have it set up there, uh, set up there in France, a halfway house of sorts to help them get used to living as a free man again in a civilized society and help them make that transition, help them to find a place to live, help them to find a job, help them through the rough times that were going to be ahead of them. That was all part of the Salvation Army's plan. However, they knew that it was one thing to see these things on paper, to see the numbers, to see the statistics, to see the description of conditions. It was another thing to actually see it firsthand. And so that's why... They sent Charles. Charles' objective in going to uh, Devil's Island the first time was twofold. Number one, to help anybody that he could to find the Lord. And number two, to figure out the best way to accomplish their objectives. Now, when Charles arrived on Devil's Island, there were 12,000 prisoners. 12,000 men who had been cast off from society as hopeless, cast off from society as uh, many of them considered not worthy to ever set foot on France again. And yes, many of them were guilty of very horrific crimes. For many of the felons, there was good reason why they were there on Devil's Island. Okay, But not necessarily for all of them. And, of course, not all of them were guilty. There were 12,000 men on the island. They were locked up at 6 p.m. and then allowed out of their hut at 6 a.m. the next morning to start their day's work. Um, His first few days there, Charles saw groups that were sent out to 
clear vegetation from roads in the camp so that they could have, you know, roads to travel on. This is a good thing. The problem is many of the prisoners were sick from the heat, sick from TB, sick from malaria, and still trying to work. The vegetation in a tropical climate like that is just incredibly thick, and it grows fast. And Charles noticed that they barely managed to clear more than a few yards a day. And the heat and the humidity on that island was so bad, it was, in Charles' opinion, as a Frenchman, it was unbearable by noon, and yet they still had several more hours that they had to work. Um... Charles Charles said one of the groups, when he first visited, one of the groups that touched his heart the most were the men that had finished their sentence and had been given land on the island. They had worked hard. They had gotten a farm going. They had had a little garden there. They had built themselves a small house. They were trying to lead as close to a normal life as they could now that they were freed. And yet, out of just plain wickedness, hatred, and spite, other prisoners would destroy their homes, would destroy their gardens, would destroy their farms, or murder them just out of evil and wickedness. And so even if they survived their sentence, and they did what they were supposed to do, and they were on a path to rehabilitation with their farm and everything, They could lose it all so quickly. We can't imagine the hopelessness that could go with that. Imagine being awakened in the night and realizing that someone has set fire to your crops. And there's nothing you can do about it. And they were in danger of starving too because of limitations on food and issues with money. It was terrible conditions. Young men were used as prostitutes by the older prisoners. And even if they didn't want to do that, even if they didn't want to cooperate with that, it was hard for them to stay safe. Uh, One of the worst things that could happen to you was to be a handsome young man that sentenced to Devil's Island. Because you would end up being uh, raped if you did not cooperate. There just wasn't any other choice. There wasn't any other way to go about this. It was just... Again, the hopelessness and the sadness. Um, And Charles, as he's walking among the prisoners, as he's traveling across the island, and he sees all these things, and he said the heaviness and the darkness of the island seemed to settle down on him, and he felt overwhelmed. But he said the Lord encouraged him, and the Lord gave him scriptures, and the Lord reminded him that all of this, All of this evil, this darkness, the sadness, the despondency was no match for the power of God. And so uh, Charles continued evaluating conditions there and seeing what was really going on. Uh, One of the things that he noticed was the severity of punishments on Devil's Island. Um, We've already mentioned the constant threat of beheading, uh, the guillotine that was kept quite active there. If a convict tried to escape, they were sentenced to 200 lashes. And I want you to think about what 200 lashes would feel like. I mean, 
if you were in those conditions, you would want to escape. But think about receiving those 200 lashes in those unhygienic conditions and what the aftermath of that would be. Uh, Prisoners that were considered lazy slackers were covered in molasses and staked to anthills for the day. Convicts who died were buried in their chains. And that just that just bothers me. I mean, goodness. They're, they, they've died. They're facing judgment, the final judgment. And you're going to leave chains on them? And then the part that bothered me the most is the cemetery. And I mentioned this earlier. The cemetery for the prisoners... Okay, there was a cemetery for the guards and their families, a prisoner, a cemetery for the prisoners. The statue of Jesus was made to face away from the prisoners, symbolizing that God has turned his back on them. And that just makes me angry and it makes me indignant. True, man may have turned his back on them. The French people may have turned their back on him and some of them may have deserved it. But God had not turned his back on them. It is we who turn our backs on God. And you know what? They could take that statue of Jesus and turn it away from the prisoners, but that did not in any way affect how Jesus felt towards those men trapped on that island. That did not affect in any way how Jesus felt. It did not affect the Lord's desire to save and heal and set free and deliver And again, bars and prison walls and all those things, they can't keep the presence of the Lord out of a place. And I'm reminded again of the demoniac of Gadara, possessed with a legion of devils. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and all those devils couldn't keep him away from Jesus. And when he threw himself at Jesus' feet, Jesus didn't turn from him, but Jesus set him free. When the lepers would come to Jesus and ask him to heal them, Jesus didn't turn from those lepers and say, you're unclean, I'm not going to mess with you. No, Jesus healed them and cleansed them. When the woman with the issue of blood that was considered ceremonially unclean by Jewish law, when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment and he said he felt virtue, he felt power go out of him, he didn't rebuke her for touching him. He turned to her. And so we see over and over in the Bible where Jesus turns towards those that are outcasts. Jesus turns towards those that are lost. Jesus turns towards those that are caught in sin. And that's what the Salvation Army wanted to do. They wanted to turn their attentions toward these men that needed God. And they wanted to put every bit of effort they had into it. But in typical Salvation Army form, they were going to do it in a logical, organized, and well-prayed-out manner. And so that's part one. Kind of short, I know, but it's part one of the Salvation Army invasion of Devil's Island. And I think it's uncanny that the prisoners themselves named it Devil's Island. But the Lord Jesus Christ 
could still begin to move and work in that island. And that's what we're going to hear about in the second part. Is how the Lord begins to move there and undertake and bring hope and bring salvation. And you know that's something neat about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Where the gospel is preached in truth and where it is preached in power. It brings with it hope. And it brings with it elevation. And by that I mean these guys, they're prisoners. They're mistreated. They're treated like the scum of the earth. The offscouring of France. And yet Jesus wanted to lift them up. And restore them to feeling like a human being again. No longer an animal. But a human being. And that's what the, that's what the gospel does. When it's preached as it should be. When it's taught as it should be. When it's lived out as it should be. And I hope as uh, we continue on with our, our day after listening to this podcast. I hope we remember to be like Jesus. And that when there is people caught in sin, when there are people in need, when there are people that are being shunned by society, that we do like Jesus and we turn to them with his love and his message of hope and his message of deliverance. And I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening.